I'm Steph. I'm Kim. And, and this, this is Solved, Unsolved or Spooky. Hey, True Crimers. Hey, everyone. Hope everybody's good. Sorry about last week. Yeah, we had some issues. Started out like mum got her COVID jab and she felt really sick for a bit. And then the computers decided they wanted to delete all her work. Yeah, so two days of like researching and putting everything together on OJ Stupid Simpson, who I will never ever do now. Oh yeah, she was sitting there the whole time going, this guy, I, I hate him. Like, I hate him. I don't like him. <laughs> Absolutely hate him. And yeah, jerk. And, yeah, I will never do that story now. I ate all of my two days of work. I'll have to cover that one. You're gonna, If you want to cover it, it's, like, morose and just, ugh. Aren't they all? Yeah, but, ugh. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so sorry about last week. We we got ready, like, we, we were here doing exactly what we're doing right now, and it was gone, and I yep. just said no. Yeah, and that's that. Hmm. And other than that, we went to Oberon and had the best time ever. It was really random. <laughs> it was really random. <laughs> I'm like, I'll go to Oberon and I'm like, what? Like, when when did you plan this? I'm like, just now. <laughs> <laughs> and then we left. And we left and off we went to Oberon to find crystals. <laughs> hmm. So we spent days in the sunshine and the freezing and yeah. All of the elements. Although I was really disappointed. The snow had melted by the time we got there, and then apparently it was supposed to snow on the weekend, but we left before then. And I was really happy that the snow had melted. (laughs) (laughs) But I am determined that it it will snow. It will snow here. It It will will snow. Yep. Although we were, like, double the elevation. (laughs) You'll be able to put some of the pictures of your crystals up on Facebook. Yes. They're quite, quite good. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, back to the story. Yep. So I'll start today because it was my turn last week. Mine yeah, we're only... doing like a kind of collab one. So we're yeah. going to give you like, I've got two stories. I think mum has one. And they're and, all um, fairly short. Yeah, but we wanted to give you a, something a bit, you know, more <laughs> to make up for last week. Yeah. All right. And I do feel like I've lost some confidence. So bear with me. <laughs> Here we are. Okay. So I'm doing a story about a dear little old lady. Oh, I'm doing one about a little old lady. (laughs) I hope we're not doing the same little old lady. I hope not. Okay. That would be awkward. (laughs) My little old lady's called Aunt Sally. Okay. Mine's not. Not Aunt Sally with an S. Aunt Sally. Sally with a TH. Okay. She was also known as Aunt Carrie. Or simply as Carolyn Grills. Hmm. You guys have got to look at the photos of her. She's like, adorable. <laughs> we all want an Aunt Sally. Do Not we? really. <laughs> so Carolyn Grills was born to George and Mary Michelson in Balmain in Sydney. Oh, Sydney. Hmm. So it's an close one. to home one. At some point between 1888 and 1890. So there's no actual <laughs> record. See, my, my little old lady has a not like has not a determined, you know, background it, either. Oh, really? Yeah, they're like, it could be this, but she said this. and uh, mm, Yeah. I love it. <laughs> a lot of similarity so far. Mm. 
Maybe they're related. I don't think so. She married Richard William Grills on the 22nd of April, 1908, and he was a labourer at the time. I think he was a lucky labourer. And you'll find out why as we go in the story. Mm. Together they built a thriving. (laughs) Thriving. Thriving. Together they built a thriving family consisting of five sons and a daughter. Hmm. That's all going well so far. So far, so good. Hmm. Well, two of the boys died tragically. One as a result of typhoid, which he contracted while working as a lifesaver at the Maroubra Beach. And it doesn't say what happened to the other chap. Oh, okay. He just he just died. He just died. Okay. The Grills moved into many different rented houses in the city around the Randwick area. During that time, Richard was employed as a real estate agent. Hmm. So during this time, she's just been like a housewife, house mom, mm. you know, learning to cook and be sweet and adorable. <laughs> but then her daddy died. Um, yeah. So after the death of her father in 1948, he willed his home to his wife, who was Carolyn's stepmother, who unfortunately tragically died shortly afterwards. Oh, I see. (laughs) (laughs) I see what's going on now. And sorry about Luna. She is sparking, as usual. As usual. Carolyn then inherited and moved into the home at Gladesville. Oh, I think I have heard of this one. <laughs> she was known as Aunt Carrie by her extensive family. <laughs> it's like me. I'm Aunty Steph. I wonder if I've got other names too. Whether <laughs> old <I'm>... lady. <laughs> I am an old lady. That's what Cosa calls you. Old lady, yeah. I get called old lady. I dread to imagine what else I get called. <laughs> She, this also sounds like me. Oh, God. She was a short, dumpy woman <laughs> who wore thick-rimmed glasses. Well, yours aren't thick, but. <laughs> Love it. I've got so much in common with this lady. Oh, I hope not. And she frequently visited her in-laws and friends, making them cups of tea and cakes and biscuits. <laughs> so you, you know how you're... Your cakes turned out. Yeah, well, I would never be able to feed anybody my food, but I do try sometimes. Oh. <laughs> and because Kim and I went away to Oberon, we actually have no food in the house, so we're living on, like, scraps of anything. <laughs> oh, we live too far away from town to go shopping, so we won't be doing that. Yeah. Anyway, how adorable. You'll have to look at the pictures in the show notes. She's the cutest little old lady. So sweet. There's one you've got to watch out for, Yeah, definitely. <laughs> On the 11th of May, 1953, Grills was arrested and charged with the attempted murder of her sister-in-law, Miss Eveline Lundberg, and Lundberg's daughter, Miss Christine Downey, both from Redfern. Hmm. The attempt had been made with thallium, a poison commonly found in rat bait. Lovely. Thallium. Sound anything like Aunt Sally? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I was I was like, wait, is that where she got that nickname? Because that makes no sense otherwise. Aunt Sally. Thallium. Hmm. The symptoms of thallium poisoning included loss of hair, <laughs> nervous disorders, progressive blindness, loss of speech, and eventual death. Sounds lovely. Are you poisoning me? 
I got all of that happening. No, you got a full head of hair. What are you talking about? You see how much is coming out when I brush it? But Danny is like... I wouldn't use rat poison. <laughs> yeah, I know. They can detect it now. <laughs> it's so disappointing. When you... Like, you did that one. Oh, what was her name? Oh, Tafana. Yeah. Aquatafana. Aquatafana. And now this one, and it's like... You get it. We wouldn't get away with it now. All right. Both Downey and Lundberg <laughs> suffered these symptoms for some time, recovering only when Mrs. Grills didn't visit them. <laughs> Sus. <laughs> and they were not alone. In 1953, Sydney was in the grip of a thallium panic. From March 1952 until the arrest of Grills, there'd been 46 cases of reported thallium poisoning involving 10 deaths. Wow. I know, right? Housewives. I've not heard about that. I, I gave... In the few months after her arrest, there were further reported cases of thall- thallium poisoning, amongst them one of a prominent footballer. Further investigation led police to charge Grills with four murders and one attempted murder. All of the victims, with the exception of a friend of her mother, were in-laws. So they were all family members. Hold on. <laughs> She's just killing them all. Just killing them all off with kindness. No. <laughs> That's not kind. <laughs> Police speculated that her poisoning spree had begun in 1947 with the murder of her stepmother. Exhumation of the bodies of two victims revealed traces of thallium. While the police believed that a strong circumstantial case existed to substantiate murder, they only proceeded with the original charge of attempting to murder Mrs. Lundberg. Hmm. So she's killed That's all weird. these people. But she, they don't care about that. They're like, I'll oh, we'll just go this one. The olden days are so weird, hey. It's like we, we get you for one thing. Back then. It wasn't that long ago, now. really. But, well, I st- no, they do try and get them now. Not good enough. Not good enough. But one charge for yeah, all of that? No, that's terrible. All right. Aunt Thally was a specific... Aunt Thally was suspected of killing her 87-year-old stepmother, Christine Michelson. 87? She's going to die anyway. (laughs) Apparently she just couldn't wait. Couldn't wait. Then relatives by marriage, Angelina Thomas and John Lundberg, and sister-in-law, Mary Ann Mickelson. We're giving that family a hard time. (laughs) Authorities tested tea she'd given to two additional family members, Christine Downey and John Downey of Redfern on the 3rd of April 1953 and detected the then common household rat poison, thallium. At the time, thallium was easy to buy over the counter in New South Wales. Mickelson had inherited from Grill's father a house in Gladesville and Grill was speculated to have murdered her to inherit it. Also, Thomas was a close friend of the Grill's couple and had left her holiday home in the Blue Mountains to the couple. Blue Mountains is nice. So she's got two houses now. Mm, she's no, doing well for herself. And losing friends and family fast. Well, she's killing them. That happens <laughs> if you kill people. Grills commonly served her friends and in-laws cakes and biscuits. <laughs> she appeared in court charged with four murders and three attempted murders, the third being Evelyn Lundberg of Redfern, Christine Downey's mother, in October 1953. At her trial in the Central Criminal Court, Grills professed her innocence. <laughs> sure. It wasn't me. I didn't do that. Of course not. Never, just never do such a thing. Claiming that police had pressured her relations to convict her 
and that she helped to live, not to kill. Mm-hmm. Her behaviour in court, marked by outbursts of laughter <laughs> and her somewhat unsettling demeanour, was commented on by the press, particularly the way she smiled and laughed and waved to the packed courthouse. Okay, probably not a good idea to do that. It's not making me think you're innocent. <laughs> this all reinforced ideas that she was indeed a psychotic killer. Yeah. On the 15th of October 1953, she was found guilty of attempted murder and sentenced to death, although her appeal was dismissed by the Court of Criminal Appeal in 1954 and her sentence was commuted to life imprisonment. Mm. She was admitted to the State Reformatory for Women, where she spent the next six and a half years. She became affectionately known as Aunt Valley to other <laughs> inmates of Sydney's Long Bay Prison. Lovely. You'd never take a drink from her, would you? No. She was known predominantly as a comfort killer who murdered well-off family members of her extended family to maintain a respectable lifestyle, but her later murders had more unclear motives. I kind of get it. It means you don't have to go to work. No, you don't get it. Okay. On the 6th of October 1960, she was rushed to the Prince Henry Hospital at Randwick, where she died from peritonitis. From a ruptured gastric ulcer. Ew, that sounds lovely. Hmm. And she was cremated with Anglican rites. Okay, I have no idea what that means, but okay. I believe she was a Christian. I'm guessing. Hmm, she just forgot how to behave like one. Apparently. Her husband, daughter and three of her sons survived her. That'd be awful, wouldn't it? Knowing your cute little sweet mum. She's not sweet. <laughs> not so cute, sweet. <laughs> The undercurrents of envy, anger or revenge that pushed her to kill so many of her family can only be guessed at. She was an unusual case, a matronly figure who did what all favourite aunts were meant to do, serve tea and cake. In the months that followed, more cases of thallium poisoning were stated, including notably prominent Australian rugby league footballer Bobby Lullum. And these are all interesting notes. Mm. Soluble thallium salts, virtually odourless and tasteless, high in toxicity, dubbed the poisonous poison or inheritance powder. Oh, I like the last one. <laughs> Soon after Carolyn's conviction, thallium was banned from sale. I can understand why. Mm. The thallium enthusiasms were a spate of poisonings that occurred throughout suburban Sydney from the late 1940s through to the 1950s. So it wasn't just Aunt Dally. Yeah. It became, like, the thing to do. That's crazy. Yep. Peaking in popularity by the middle of 1953. 46 cases of thallium poisonings in Sydney between March 52 and May 53, so 14 months. That's a lot. Crazy. By the close of 1953, six women in New South Wales had been charged with dosing family members with thallium. That's killing everybody. Mm. All of these women were put on trial for serving up food, such as scones, <laughs> oh, <yum. laughs> cakes or jam rolls, or drinks, usually tea or Milo, laced with thallium, <laughs> to their relatives and loved ones. William Crooks, a chemist, discovered thallium in the 1860s Initially, it was used as a delipatory in dermat dermatolo dermatological procedures. 
Thallium-induced hair loss, so its application was a way of eradicating scabies and Mm. other scalp conditions. Interesting. Hmm. It was also used to cure wingroom. (laughs) What? (laughs) It was also used to cure ringworm. I got English today. (laughs) (laughs) That's the poison. Although this use declined in popularity after the 1930s, when 13 children treated with thallium died in Spain. Oh, God. Yeah, probably good idea to stop that. Yeah, let's not do that anymore. <laughs> While thallium had these med- medicinal uses, its poisonous properties were soon realised and capitalised on. And by the turn of the century, it was being sold as a poison for eradicating vermin. Both rural New South Wales and the inner city suburbs of Sydney had a chronic rat problem in the 20th century. Hmm. With an I mean, es- we have a chronic mouse problem at the moment. We do have a chronic mouse problem at the moment. With an estimated population of up to 2 million rats in inner Sydney oh. by the late 1940s. That would have been nice. How gross. Rats were carriers of disease such as the bubonic plague or diphtheria and were also a menace in the family home. Having been found nibbling on the faces and feet of small children. <laughs> oh, I just had visual images of that. It's <laughs> terrifying. Oh, dear. <laughs> uh, casual. By the early 1940s, Thallium was marketed in New South Wales as the rat killer Thalrat. It was exempted under the Poisons Act of 1902 because it was such an effective rodenticide. Thalrat was readily available at front counters, corner shops, chemists, hardware stores across Sydney. Unlike other poisons, such as cyanide or arsenic, thallium was undetectable if served in food or drink. Oh, interesting. It was invisible, it didn't smell, and it had no taste. (laughs) The main symptoms of thallium poisoning in humans were hair loss, gastroenteritis, numbness, blindness, loss of speech, and eventually death. Of the six accused thallium poisoners, the trials of three provoked a massive media frenzy. I bet it did. So Carolyn was one of them, and then there were these other two. The first thallium murder trial was that of Yvonne Fletcher of Newtown in September 1952, who was charged with the murder of her first husband, Desmond Butler, in 1948, and her second husband, Bertrand Fletcher, in March 1952. Hmm. That's four years. So killed one, got another. Killed him. And he's dead within a four-year spate. The rat connection was strong for her second husband, was employed as a rat bait layer, (laughs) and it was from him that she obtained the poison. Oh. Then there was the case of Veronica Mabel Monty, who was accused of poisoning but not murdering her son-in-law, the popular Balmain <laughs> Rugby League football player Bobby Lullum. Her trial, which began one month after the trial of Carolyn Grill, caused scandal as it was revealed that Monty and Lullum had been conducting an affair. Oh. Oh. Obviously she wasn't enjoying it. Understandably, it didn't end well for all concerned, with two divorces and Lullum abandoning his football career. Happily for the people of New South Wales, the sensation of the Lullum poisoning forced the hand of the New South Wales government 
to place restrictions on the sale of Thalret. What made these poisonings unusual is that they were all carried out by women within the seemingly innocuous setting of the home. Their offerings of food and drink were actually murder attempts disguised as acts of generosity. None of these women offered compelling reasons for why they were set on murdering or at least incapacitating their family members. So if that creepy, sweet little old lady comes calling, bringing cakes and cookies, be aware. This could be a simple act of loving and care, or it could be a murder attempt on your life. <laughs> your call. You'll never know. It's too late. Want a cup of coffee? Yes, please. <laughs> I don't even care. I love coffee. <laughs> and that's the end of my poisoning tale. Ironically, we do have a mouse plague in New South Wales at the moment. I have plenty. Although lately, um, they seem to be not as bad. Yeah, I think they're dying off, but we are putting poison absolutely everywhere. Everywhere, yeah. I love it that one woman started this whole thing and then we had five others at least jump on the bandwagon. That was interesting. It was, hey. I don't know why, but I really like these women that, I don't know, I know it's what, bad. kill all their family members? <laughs> I just think they're utilising what they have at hand. and It's murder. It is bad, I know. Yeah. But it is fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's crazy. <laughs> Psycho. Hmm. A bit like you. So that's me done. Okay, so... Now it's my turn. I have two stories. And my first story I actually found on Pinterest. Mm, how Pinteresting. <laughs> because, well, I'll get to it later, but it was funny. So I thought, you know, I'll do this one. So I think his name is Todd Colhep. I'm pretty sure that's how you say his last name. I'm not really that concerned if it's wrong because he's bad. So, you mm. know. He was born on March 7th, 1971 in Florida, and was raised in South Carolina and Georgia. His parents divorced when he was two years old, and his mother got custody and married another man. Collab had an unhealthy relationship with his stepfather and often wanted to live with his biological father. He was described as a troublesome child and in nursery school, which I'm pretty sure is like the equivalent of preschool. Oh, probably. Uh, he was known to be aggressive towards other children and would destroy their property. Aww. So we're not starting out great if he's in, like, preschool, uh, which are, like, four or five. No, that's sad. At the age of nine, he started undergoing counselling. Colt was described as being explosive and preoccupied with sexual content. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. He also displayed cruelty to animals, shooting a dog with a BB gun and killing a goldfish with bleach. So, oh, yeah, trigger warning, people. Sorry. Oh, yes, he's, he's not great. His father later said that the only emotion his son was capable of was anger. Collip spent three and a half months in Georgia Psychiatric Hospital as an inpatient because of his inability to get along with other children. How old was he at this point? Little. Jeez. Like he was still a kid. That's sad. Yeah. In 1983, he was sent to live with his biological father in Arizona after his mother and stepfather separated, and he began working a number of local jobs. He also inherited his father's hobby of collecting weapons and was taught by him to, quote, blow things up and make bombs. <laughs> so I know it's a 
your father bonding time, but maybe not a good idea. Like, it'll be so much fun for some people, but for some people, no. Yeah, no. But their relation deteriorated due to his father's absence with a number of girlfriends, and Collip expressed desires to return to his mother. This kid just gets whatever he wants. No wonder he's a rat bag. <laughs> On November 25, 1986, at the age of 15, he kidnapped a 14-year-old girl in Temp- Arizona. Uh, and trigger warning, there's got to be some like rape and stuff mentioned. Well, you better let this little 14-year-old go. He threatened her with a 22 caliber revolver and brought her back to his home, tied her up, taped her mouth, and shut and raped her. Afterwards, he walked her home and threatened to kill her younger siblings if she told anyone about what had happened. Oh, he's a monster. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. He was charged with kidnapping, sexual assault, and committing a dangerous crime against children. So she obviously told someone then? Yeah, I'm guessing. It didn't really say. There wasn't overly that much information about him. Yeah. In 1987, he pled guilty to the kidnapping charge and the other charges were dropped. He was sentenced to 15 years in prison and was registered as a sex offender, which I don't really think was enough, but whatever. Did you do 15 years? I don't know yet. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> According to the court records, Collett was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and had an IQ of 118, which was considered above average. The judge in the case said Collett was very bright and should be advanced academically but behaviourally and emotionally dangerous and likely could not be rehabilitated. The, the judge knows what's going on, <laughs> but he didn't get enough. Collis' probation officer wrote a similar description not caught in court papers and added that he, quote, felt the world owed him something. During his imprisonment, he attended and graduated from Central Arizona College with a bachelor's degree in computer science. In August 2001, Collip was released from prison after serving 14 years and moved to South Carolina, where his mother was living. So he served all but well, one least, year. At least he'd done the 14 years. That's rare. Hmm. From January 2002 to November 2003, he worked as a graphic designer for a company in Spartanburg. He began studying at Greenville Technical College in 2003. He transferred to University of South Carolina, upstate the following year, and graduated in 2008 with a Bachelor of Science degree in Business Administration and Marketing. Despite being registered as a sex offender, he was able to get a real estate license on June 30, 2006, after lying about the felony charge on his application. Hmm. He built a firm that had a dozen agents in its employment. A customer who sold her home to Collip remembered him as extremely outgoing and professional, but noted that he would often talk about his firearms and sometimes subtly use sexual innuendos during their conversations. Hmm. Yeah. A woman who assisted one of Collip's employees described him as angry and condescending towards her partner. A banker who worked with Collip said he often watched pornographic videos, even at work. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. He frequented a Waffle House restaurant in Roebuck. So I'm guessing it's just a restaurant that sells waffles. I would imagine. <laughs> That's really random, but anyway. Where his behaviour disturbed the waitresses to the point where the male cook began to take his orders for them. On November 6, 2003, a customer found four people shot to death inside 
Superbike Motorsports, a motorcycle shop in Chesney. The victims were identified as owner Scott Ponder, service manager Brian Lucas, mechanic Chris Sherbert, and bookkeeper Beverly Guy, who was also Ponder's mother. Ooh. Yeah. All four died from multiple gunshot wounds. According to his mother, he attempted to return a motorcycle there, but the employees laughed at him but would not return the money he paid for the motorcycle and embarrassed him for not knowing how to ride one. On August 31st, 2016, Kayla Brown, 30, and her boyfriend Charles David Carver, 32, went missing after they went to clean Collip's residence. Carver was later found dead of multiple gunshots on Collip's property. Interest in the disappearance of Brown and Carver increased as a result of posts on Carver's Facebook account following their disappearance the unusual nature of which prompted speculation that another party had taken control of his Facebook account. On November 3, Brown was found by authorities chained to the wall inside a metal storage container on the property. Investigators had tracked her down after tracing the couple's last known cell phone signals, after which they heard banging noises coming from inside the container. Oh, she alive? Mm-hmm. <laughs> According to Brown, she witnessed Carver being shot by Collip but Colt's mother claimed Carver was killed for having a really smart mouth, which Colt did not like. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, no, stop. Don't let the mum know this I'm like, crap. stop defending him. Yeah, you've already done, you've caused all this like, stupid woman. No, just stop. He also said he kept Brown captive because she did not do anything wrong and that he did not want to hurt her. However, Brown stated to police just after her rescue that Colt had killed Carver because Colt was quote, mad at her. During her captivity, Brown was intimidated into not escaping after having been shown the graves of Collip's other victims. Mm -hmm. Two bodies were discovered on his property following his arrest. On November 6th to 7th, they were later identified as husband and wife Johnny Joe Coxie, 29, and Megan Lee McCraw Coxie, 26 who were reported missing on December 22, 2015. They were allegedly hired by him to work on his property. McCraw Coxie had been killed by a gunshot wound to the head on December 25th or 26th, while Coxie had been killed a week earlier. On Christmas Day? <laughs> yeah. My goodness. By um, a gunshot wound to the torso. According to the county coroner, they were identified through their extensive tattoos. Collip was arrested shortly after Brown's rescue. He later to confess to the Chesney shooting and the murders of the Coxies in exchange for allowing him to talk to his mother, give her a photograph and transfer the money to a college fund of a friend's child. While meeting with his mother, he reportedly confessed to the killings and kidnapping. When he confessed to the Chesney shooting, Collip said he shot each of the victims once in the forehead, a detail in the investigation that was never released to the public. Mm. A search of his property also uncovered numerous weapons, including a 9mm pistol with suppressors, semi-automatic rifles, and an undetermined amount of ammunition. Authorities in Spartanburg County discovered a number of seemingly joking product reviews of various items. This is this is what I saw that prompted me to like <laughs> do this. He would put like a review up. Yeah. About the items 
he used in his crimes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, like, padlocks, shovels, tasers, and gun accessories on the on Amazon. Really? <laughs> uh-huh. And it, his username was um, me. Me? Yep, just me. And one review was about a padlock. Stated, quote, solid locks, have five on the shipping container, won't stop them, but sure will slow them down till they are too old to care. Another, written for a folding shovel, read, quote, keep in the car for when you have to hide the bodies and you left the full-size shovel at home, does not come with a midget, which would have been nice. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> wow. You literally left, like, reviews about these items that you help, like, commit his crimes with. It's oh, insane. Man. Following his arrest, he claimed to his mother that there were many other victims. When his mother asked how many, his response was, you don't have enough fingers. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. During interrogation, he claimed to have shot a victim in Arizona on, the no- on November 18, 2016. It was reported that the Temp Police Department had begun to invest an investigation into Colt's claims, searching through unsolved homicides in the past three decades. On November 25th, 2016, police in Greer, South Carolina, announced that they had named Collip as a person of interest in an unsolved 2003 bank robbery and triple homicide at the local Blue Ridge Saving Bank. Oh, wow. Yeah. This crime was separate from the Chesney shooting by six months. No definitive links between the, like him and these killings have been made, but they think it was him. He was charged with four counts of murder in relation to the Chesney shootings and one count of kidnap in relation to Brown's abduction. He was later charged with three additional counts of murder for the murders of the Carver and the Coxies, along with one additional count of kidnapping and three counts of possession of a weapon during the commission of a violent crime. His next court appearance was scheduled for January 19, 2007, where his attorney waived their right to, to appearance. On May 26, 2017, he pleaded guilty to seven counts of murder, two counts of kidnapping, and one count of criminal sexual assault, and was sentenced to seven consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole, in a plea bargain that spared him from the capital punishment. Although his defence swore at his sentencing that there were no other victims to be found, he has since repeatedly admitted that there are at least two other murders. Oh, wow. Yes. That's horrible. Yeah. And that's, you know, Todd Cullip. So here's my next one. (laughs) She is known variously as the Bannet Witch or the Witch of Vladimirovac. (laughs) I have no idea how to say that. I'm really sorry but is best known as Baba Anjuga. Baba Anjuga. Yeah. But she's a witch regardless. Well, I don't know if she's like a real witch, but she, you'll see. She's okay. sketchy. Witches aren't bad. No, she's bad, though. Aren't bad, but she sounds like she's she bad. is. Yeah. Data is scarce and unreliable about Anjuga's early life. According to some sources, she was born in 1838 in Romania to a rich cattleman and moved to Vladimirovac. <laughs> I'm sorry if I get that, because I'm butchering it. I know I am. In the Banat military frontier province of Austrian Empire around 1849. 
However, she claimed that she was born in 1836. She attended private school in Pansevo with children from rich families and lived there, later lived in her father's house. We don't really know how exactly old she is. Yeah. She allegedly became a misanthropist at the age of 20 after being seduced by a young Austrian military officer. She contracted syphilis from him before he left her brokenhearted. Aww. Yeah, it's not great. After that, she sought seclusion and started to show interest in medicine and chemistry. And she also spoke five languages. So wow. pretty impressive. She's right, chick. Yeah. She later married a landowner named Pistov, with whom she had 11 children. These women are so busy, aren't they? <laughs> but only one of them survived adulthood. That's pretty sad. Her husband was much older than she and died after 20 years of marriage. And Juka made a laboratory in one of her, like, wings of her house after he died. And she earned a reputation as a healer and a herbalist. Aww, this sounds So, so far she's okay. Like, you know, she's just doing medicines and helping people. But it, it gets worse. She was popular with wives of farmers who saw her help for health problems. And she earned a respectable income, which enabled her to live comfortably. She produced medicines and mixtures which would make soldiers ill enough to escape military service. And she also sold poisonous mixtures which she branded magic water or love potions. Oh my goodness. (laughs) She sold the so-called magic water mostly to women with abusive husbands. They would give the concoction to their husbands, who would usually die after about eight days. Sounds like Tafana water. It does. I think this woman's been reading. (laughs) Njuka's love potions contained arsenic in small quantities and certain plant toxins that were difficult to detect. When told about a marriage problem, Njuka would ask her client, how heavy is the problem? (laughs) Which meant, what is the body mass of the victim? (laughs) She was then able to calculate the dose needed. Njuka's victims were usually men, typically young and healthy. Her clients claimed at her trial that they did not know that her, quote, magic water contained poison, but that they believed that she had some kind of supernatural powers to kill people using magic. And Juka's potions killed between 50 and 150 people. Whoa. In the 1920s, Njuka had her own sales agent, a woman named, oh, I'm just going to say her last name because no way I'm saying her first name. Milankov, whose job was to find potential clients and take them to Andrukka's house. Now, that sounds so familiar to her. It is identical. It is. The price of Andrukka's, quote, magic water fluctuated between 2,000 to 10,000 Yugoslav dinners. Or diners, I'm not sure, sorry. Andrukka sold her magic water to Stanta Momirov. I'm very sorry about the way I'm saying these names. I'm so sorry. In January 1944, for 2,300 dinners, Stana was a previous client, and Anjuka had provided her with herbal medicines on other occasions. Stana gave the mixture to her husband, Lazar Ludowski, and he fell ill and died after a few days. Stana later married another man from the same village, a rich uncle of her second husband, died under similar circumstances within a few months. The police questioned Stana and she incriminated Anjuka. Oh. 
Andruka sold her magic water in December 1926 to Sima Momirov and his wife Sofija, who intended to kill Sima's 70-year-old father, Nikolov Momirov. According to their claim, Nikola was an alcoholic and abusive towards his children and grandchildren. Sofija heard about Andruka from a woman named Danika Stodjik, and they contacted Andruka, who sold them her magic water for 5,000 dinners. Oh, she's making a lot of moolah. <laughs> yeah, well, she's living comfortably, Ooh. remember? <laughs> she gave it to her 16-year-old, Olga Sturza, Nicola's granddaughter, who ordered, and ordered her to ensure that Nicola drank it all. Nicola drank the potion and fell ill and died after 15 days. Oh, wow. Yep. And Joker's first trial it was in June 1914 in Bella Krikva for providing poison for murder, but she was acquitted. She was arrested again on May 15th, 1928, at the age of 90. Wow. <laughs> yes. So wow. Stana, Sofija, and Sima Momirov, Milenkov, Danika Stodjik, and Olga Sturza were arrested as well and charged with the murders of Nikola Momirov and Lazar Ludovsky. The authorities exhumed the bodies of the victims for the autopsies performed at the University of Belgrade. The trial began in June 1929 at the District Court in Pansebo and the hearing took place on 18th and 19th of June. The trial continued on the 1st of July when results were available from the chemical testing on samples found in Andruka's house. The prosecutor sought the death penalty for all defendants except for Sturza, who was a minor at the time of the murder and for whom he sought a prison sentence. Sofia and Sima defended themselves at the trial. They claimed that they did not know that the magic water contained poison. They believed that it was just water and the death came as a result of Andruka's supernatural powers. <laughs> Stana Momirov claimed that they only wanted the magic water to heal her husband from alcoholism and she was not aware that it would kill him. Likely story. <laughs> yes. During the trial, Andruka constantly denied charges, claiming that she never sold any magic water and that the whole case against her was fabricated by Milenkov, who wanted to blame Andruka for her own crimes. Sturza defended herself, claiming that she was still a child at the time of the murder and that she was not aware that the water would kill her grandfather. But Sofija tested that Sturza was well aware of the whole plot. The verdict was delivered on the 6th of July 1929. Andruka was sentenced to 15 years in prison for the role of accomplice in both murders. Stana and Sofija Momirov were sentenced to life in prison as the main perpetrators. Sima Momirov was sentenced to 15 years and Milenkov to 8 years. Olga Serza and Danika Stojic were acquitted. Both the prosecutor and the defendants appealed the verdict to the Apolita court in Novi Sad and the trial took place on the 29th and 30th of November 1929. The prosecutor demanded capital punishment for all defendants. After some cross-examination, 
Sima and Sofija Momirov admitted that they knew about the poison from the start. All defendants stood by their previous statements otherwise. The verdict was delivered on the 30th of November 1929. Njuka was resentenced to 15 years in prison with hard labour. And Stana and Sofija Momirov were resentenced to life in prison. Sima Momirov's sentence was increased from 15 years to life and Milankov's sentence was increased to 8 to 10 years. Mm. Sturza and Stojic were again acquitted. And Juka was released at the age of 98 after 8 years in prison due to old age. She died two years later in her house at the age of 100. That is incredible. Yep. And it, they reckon she's like one of the oldest serial killers. Wow. <laughs> I wonder if she like when she got back home and she had two years to spare, whether she got back into it again. I don't know. I like to think so. <laughs> oh, I think she would have given up. That's incredible. Yep. How crazy is that? Wow. Hmm. I wonder if there'll be another one. Like had Julia Pifana, you had this chick. Oh, had there's the Hayley's. Women. There's so many. There's women just poison, don't they? There's like um, the Black Widow. I think she used Auntie Ant. <laughs> There's, um, oh, what is it? The Tylenol. Is that what it oh, was? Oh, yeah, one of those. Yeah, which was putting cyanide in the little capsules. Wow. There's so many. Well, that was very interesting. Mm. Yeah, I wanted to do those stories, but they're both really short, so it kind of worked out good this way. Because, mm. yeah, I saw that, like, the Todd one, and, like, he left, like, reviews about murder weapons yeah, and stuff. Sicko. And then this lady, I was like, what do you do in love? Like, yeah. And it's fascinating. It is fascinating. Absolutely amazing. And crazy. Oh, that's all I got. I've got nothing else. I guess that's it. I guess we'll see everyone next week, hopefully. No yeah. more computer problems. Yeah, hopefully this actually recorded. If it didn't, we'll probably never speak to you again. <laughs> Well, and Mum and I are going to go on adventures and find rocks. Yeah, we'll be going on some adventures and we'll keep you updated. Because I'm obsessed. She is obsessed. We, like, half killed ourselves. We couldn't walk. Because we, like, did so much adventuring. (laughs) But we're cool. It's cool. We're back. Anyway, we'll see everyone. Next, wait, who's doing a story next week now? I don't know. I think it's your turn again. Man, the stress. <laughs> Maybe we'll both do one. Who Maybe, knows? Who knows? I guess we'll have to find out. You'll have to find out. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. You can follow us at Facebook at Solved, Unsolved or Spooky, on Twitter at hashtag or solved, Instagram at Solved, Unsolved or Spooky, you can email us at podcast at solved, unsolved, or spooky.com. And if you want to support the show, go to Podfan and find Solved, Unsolved, or Spooky and pick one of the tiers. Thank you. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Mm-hmm.